so all of those moments led me to that place of being ready to listen to people who said, hey, buddy, do you know that your book actually had a really negative impact you know, on our lives? And that was the pro- that was the beginning of a, a process that became a documentary and this whole you know journey of me sitting down and listening to those criticisms and and finally being able to see no these are these are not just one off things these are not just people who misapplied my book these are people who applied the ideas in you know very faithful ways and the results were were not good for them. This is Meredith for real, the curious introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. This episode was pretty therapeutic. The prepping for the episode was therapeutic. The conversations that branched off from this episode were therapeutic. I personally read I Kissed Dating Goodbye in high school. And although I didn't buy into every aspect of its strict formal courtship suggestions, there are many aspects of my life affected by the purity movement of the late 90s. If you're listening to this, by the way, outside the U.S., and you have no idea what I'm talking about, AIDS and teen pregnancy were at the forefront of headlines in the 90s, and there was a general effort to rebalance the youth culture from the rock and roll aspects of the 1980s. So that kind of sets the scene for what began the true love waits idea. And maybe you can relate to that, or maybe you're a parent now and you wonder how to talk to your kids about sex. While this is very far from a how-to episode, that's actually the point. The point is to enter a subject with hard and defined edges for many of us with open curiosity. Should sex be saved for marriage? My guest shares why he changed his stance on this matter, the connection between your sex life and your career, and his biggest concern with modern dating now. If you've ever been curious where I end up finding guests like these, it varies a lot. So I started putting the source of each guest in my Monday email, along with the regular info about that episode. If you're not getting those and you want to be included, you can text REAL to 66866 if you're in the US or go to MeredithForReal.com if you're somewhere else. And huge thanks if you are one of my amazing loyal listeners. My mission is to create a curious community and you're doing it every time you tune in. And if you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did with the writer of the movie, uh, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. His hilarious purity culture stories are awesome. That's episode 90. And if you're someone who has enjoyed a few episodes of the show, it would mean a lot to me if you would leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. And finally, if you're new here, welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious, to disrupt the algorithm, and to grow into better humans. We talk about everything from heart disease to homelessness. So bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. There's no specific order to listen to the episodes. All right. Enjoy the show. True love waits. Stay pure until marriage. It's better to marry than to burn. If you were coming up of age in the late 90s in the evangelical Christian community, 
Those were things you heard a lot. You probably also read I Kiss Dating Goodbye, a popular book touting courtship as the superior way to find God's perfect match for you and avoid the perils of sexual sin. The author of that book is my next guest. His life has changed a lot since he wrote that book, including his view on premarital sex. Today, he's going to share his first-person account of what it's like to change your mind about something that you wrote a bestseller about. And we're going to, well, talk about sex. (laughs) Fellow 90s kid, rethought and rebranded Joshua Harris. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. That was quite the introduction. Well, thank you. (laughs) You know what's funny about all of this that I was thinking about is if we were in our respective communities, two co-eds talking about sex would not, this conversation would not even be allowed. And that just made me laugh. that's true. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's really uncommon. That is very true. Yeah. And it's really uncommon to see um, a public figure like change their mind about something unless they're mm. on the canceling chopping block. You know what I mean? Mm. And uh, it's it, it would be difficult, especially, I think, if your identity was connected to whatever it was you were talking about, like yours was, certainly mm. from people who created a career around it. And let's be honest, men are not really known for being like, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> So can you, it's, how did you hard. Yeah. it's so hard. So yeah, tell me how you hard. came to this conclusion about such a major subject for you. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the, the canceling chopping block. Um, and I know you're, you're saying that in kind of a facetious way, but there was a sense in which I was on that block. And I don't always think that's a negative thing actually, because there were a lot of reasons why it took me a long time to actually engage with the criticisms and it was the large number of voices that were speaking to me, <laughs> you know, from the internet, which has enabled what we talk about as cancel culture. But really what is it's enabled in many cases is for people to have the power to stand up to authority figures, you know, and in the, in the world of the evangelical church, a lot of times there's not accountability. Uh, leaders and pastors and authors can just sort of do their thing without any sort of, um, you know, anyone calling them to account for the result of their ideas. And it really was a large group of people kind of standing up and sharing their stories that helped to change my mind. But it took a long time. And I, I understand why so few people do it, because it is incredibly disruptive. It's scary. You know, you mentioned identity, there could be a loss of identity, there's a loss of income, there's, you know, this fear that you'll be rejected by the the group of people that used to support you if you you shift in some way. So it was a really it was a really tough experience. And it wasn't just this like brave, you know, moment for me. Along the way, there were moments that kind of pushed me forward. And then I was like, oh my gosh, should I really, you know, rethink this? And then I did, and then I had to live with the consequences of that. But along the way, I wanted to to turn back many times. So was it a gradual process or was it like all of a sudden all the voices just clicked with you and you're like, wow, this is because I mean, you're talking about not just a social issue, not just like a girl boy issue. You're talking about a a theological issue. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the big idea of this book that I wrote when I was 21, um, was, 
because saving sex was the thing that everyone was talking about in the church, and that was the most important issue, if we wanted to be faithful to God and save sex for marriage, then we needed to back up even further and not put ourselves in the position to have the opportunity to get involved emotionally and sexually and so on. And so I took a lot of ideas that were very popular in the homeschool movement and different parts of the church, and I sort of popularized them. I was this young guy that was saying, hey, actually, this is a good idea. We should stop dating. And the book took off and it was embraced by a lot of people. Um, it took almost 20 years <laughs> before I could see the the consequences of those ideas. You know, a lot of concepts that we have or fads that take place in culture, whether it's religion or just the broader culture, you don't really see the implications of them. A book sells, people do the new diet, you know, they sort of move on with their life. But something like dating and relationships and romance and who you marry has really long-lasting implications, right? And so there was a whole generation of Christians who embraced the ideas of my book, and then they got married. And then time went by, and maybe those marriages didn't go so well, or maybe some of them never got married, and time went by. And they started to feel you know, really upset about the, the bill of goods that they'd been sold uh, in the purity culture movement, and in my book in particular. And so part of the the what happened was that this whole generation started talking to each other and saying, wait a second, why did we think that way? <laughs> why did we buy into that? Did this actually work? No, I married someone that I shouldn't have married, or I, I didn't date people and get to know the different options that were out there or whatever it might be, all these different, very human, um, in some cases, heart-wrenching stories. And um, for me, there was there was sort of a breakdown of all the things that I you know, gave my life security. I was a pastor of a large church. Well, that church started to get rocked by, you know, political division and turmoil. We were hit with a sex abuse lawsuit, like all these things that shook my confidence that I was on the right team. And I knew, you know, all the right answers began to fall apart. And I started to see along with other pastors there were some real problems in our church culture, not just because of my book, but because of many other issues, the way we tried to control people's lives in such a, you know, you know, kind of powerful way. And I started to slowly connect the dots, like, wait a second, all these problems in people's lives are tied to the way we've been leading our church and ideas like my book <laughs> are connected to that. And so I ended up stepping down from my role to go to seminary on the other side of the continent in Canada, stepping away from that role as pastor gave me the space to realize I didn't want to be a pastor, gave me the space to question things. I was able to just be a student instead of having to be the leader with all the answers. And so all of those moments led me to that place of being ready to listen to people who said, hey, buddy, do you know that your book actually had a really negative impact, you know, on our lives? Yeah. And that was the pro that was the beginning of a, a process that became a documentary and this whole, you know, journey of me sitting down and listening to those criticisms and and finally being able to see, you know, these are these are not just one-off things. These are not just people who misapplied my book. These are people who applied the ideas in, you know, very faithful ways and the results were were not good for them. 
I think I would be remiss if I didn't address the fact that you went to seminary and the end result was that you wanted to leave the ministry. <laughs> I think that's usually the opposite effect of what happens. Um, can we touch on that briefly? I know it's not related to our topic, but I feel like it's just sure. the elephant in the room. Well, you know, the the interesting thing or the sad thing about the church movement that I was a part of is that they celebrated not um, having formal education for their pastors. And so I became a pastor before, I mean, I'm sorry, I became a pastor before I went to seminary, before I was formally educated. And it was sort of on-the-job training, and there was a real celebration of, you know, doing all the the theological learning in-house. But it what it ended up doing is it um, it really gave such a narrow perspective on theology. There was not the opportunity to interact with different theologies and different, you know, um, traditions of the church. So I was a pastor in that, in that group for a long time. And when I got to this point of being completely burned out, I knew I needed a broader perspective. I knew I needed to learn in a different context. So I finally went to seminary after being a pastor for 17 years, (laughs) which is the opposite way that you're supposed to do things. Um, so it wasn't that this this uh, seminary that I went to, it wasn't that it made me not want to be a pastor. It just was more the space in my life to be able to ask the question what I actually wanted. And um, in that context, I realized, you know what, I've been doing this for a long time. And it, it actually is really, it's draining me uh, emotionally and spiritually. And it's not, it's not what I want. Um, and yeah, so seminary led me out of the, out of the ministry, but it, uh, I think it led me to a more kind of faithful, authentic place. Well, you, it's funny that maybe those two things are connected, uh, premarital sex and, you know, choosing a mate and choosing a career because you do have to make (laughs) space to think about what you want. And, you know, I am for premarital sex. I'm thinking about having t-shirts made that just say premarital sex. And then like one of the Facebook thumbs up. (laughs) I'll let you know how that turns out. Um, But, and one of the reasons is because it allows you to figure out what you want. And, Mm. you know, one of the other reasons that I would love for you to weigh in on is I feel like if you are dating someone and there's a lot of sexual energy, that is clouding Mm. your logical thinking, right? Yeah, for sure. And if you are going to legally bind your life with another human for life, mm. you need all of your faculties in order, right? Yeah. So that that's one of the things that I'm, I think is uh, a reason for it. But I mean, I definitely would love to know, especially, f- you know, from th- a theology perspective, did you come across anything that supported that from like a... Th- from a theology point of view, because that's the argument I Mm. mostly hear from people is aside from the practical things, which can be accomplished outside of a marital agreement. It's like, well, Mm. that's God's best for our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are definitely um, people who are are writing uh, works of theology that are arguing for a, within the Christian tradition, they're arguing for a much broader perspective on sexuality. They're arguing against uh, this very narrow focus on it only happening within a heterosexual relationship, within you know the the bonds of marriage, and so on. But 
that is definitely a minority opinion. Um, I I think the reality of the most of the church is that sex is very tied to marriage. Marriage is tied to, you know, the picture of Christ and the church. So there's just all these reasons why free love and, you know, the, the freedom to experiment sexually and understand what you want and so on is not celebrated by most churches or, you know, kind of backed up by most theologies. And I mean, that's part of the reason for me, I've really stepped away from the church. So I'm not trying to justify my ideas about sex or my affirmation of my LGBTQ plus friends within Christian theology. I've just really stepped away from it and said, listen, I'm not at the same place. I'm not trying to play by all these same rules. But what you're describing earlier is is absolutely so true. You know, when you when you make this rule or when you believe this rule that sex has to happen within marriage, it creates tremendous pressure on uh, you know unmarried couples who are considering marriage. So many people I've talked to would say, "Yes, we got married quickly because we were horny. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we wanted to have we wanted to have sex." And this was the only way to do it. Or there was so much pressure because everyone around us was so afraid that if we didn't get married quickly, we were going to have sex. And, you know, so there's there's uh, so much of even like the Old Testament teaching about sex and virgins and so on was so tied to a view of women in particular that was so property based. It was you have to make sure that your offspring, they're really your offspring. So, the, you know, the woman has to be a virgin because you want a family succession that's pure and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so, so many of those very ancient ideas have informed what the way that I think many religions, but Christianity in particular function. And then I would just say there are so many hangups in, in, in so many religious contexts about sex. It be, it's become such a massive deal. And then it's been reinforced, you know, as a, as a kind of, key part of the culture wars and so on. So there's just incredible pressure. And I think that pressure leads to uh, real problems, problems in the way we relate, problems in the way we even approach sexuality and experience sexuality. So uh, I've, I've really interacted with so many couples that have that kind of story, that their sex life is really marred by the guilt that they felt for so long around sex, holding off all those desires and then getting married and suddenly they're supposed to just turn on and turn themselves on sexually and be completely open and comfortable. And, and that's really a difficult thing to do because your mind has been programmed. This is such a bad thing. It's so terrible. You know, the joke is sex is such a terrible, you know, dirty, nasty thing. You should save it for the one you love. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Oh my gosh. And when you said it puts so much pressure on them. Let's be real by them. We mean her because I don't know what your experience was, but my experience in my community was it was definitely the woman's job to dress modestly, swim in a t-shirt and shorts, um, and, and really protect the man's purity because boys will be boys. And then when you got married, Mm -hmm. it was like you were expecting to also carry the burden of sexual satisfaction and be some sort of, you know, super sexual, awesome, knowledgeable person. But we weren't even allowed to masturbate. Like there was no discussion of education, no discussion of pleasure. Mm. And you're absolutely right about um, the, you know, 
getting married too soon. I even knew someone and they're still married amazingly, but they married Mm. in high school. They were children because their Mm -hmm. parents didn't want them to have sex before they got married. But for most of us from my community, we are not married to the person that we first Mm. got married to like that first Mm. marriage. um, Either they're married and maybe it's not the right fit and they're struggling and they're unhappy Mm. and, or they parted ways. So it definitely leads to a lot of problems, but in the Bible, didn't people get married when they were teenagers? Like that makes more sense from a hormone perspective. Mm. Yeah. I think people were getting married much, much earlier in, in earlier days for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for anyone who looks back and let's say they're our age, 40 ish, and they look back to their twenties, as long as we didn't write a best-selling book about it, it's pretty easy (laughs) to go, you know what? I was a moron, but what's hard. And I would love if you have any like incredible insight on this, what's hard is to look back and mourn lost opportunity. Mm. So for those Mm. of us from that community, you know, we're mourning the lost opportunity to be young and carefree in our twenties without daily guilt and shame. We're mourning the Mm -hmm. lost opportunity of, um, you know, moving away or, you know, different things that were interrupted by marriage, maybe parenthood before they were ready. Um, so Mm -hmm. if that's something that you experienced and have worked through, Mm -hmm. please share with the class. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think I just am so I'm so hesitant to just give kind of pat answers or wrap it up all, you know, wrap it up with a bow kind of answers because that is what we get in so many contexts that want us to just sort of um you know, shut up and deal with it and move on and I I think the thing that I would just want to say is that regret is real. And it's and it's completely valid. And um, people who have experienced that are are you're not alone. There are so many others who have experienced that kind of regret that comes from a very restrictive community, family, religion, whatever it might be. And I think that's what makes something like purity culture and my book um, such a flashpoint, because. Some decisions you make, like, oh, uh, you know, you got bad advice and you bought the wrong car. Okay, well, you, you know, get rid of that car and you buy a new one. Well, something like marriage, it just touches so many parts of your life. You know, if it's a if it's an unhealthy marriage, extricating yourself from that is so difficult, so painful relationally. If there are kids involved, you know, whatever it might be, or not having gotten married to someone that, you know, I hear that story from people. Like I was dating this person and then because of the standards that everyone had, I, I ended the relationship mm-hmm. and I look back now and I'm like, I think that was my person, you know? Oh. And it's like, there's no, there's no way to easy way to, to fix that. That's just incredibly hard and, and painful. And I think for me personally, I mean, you know, all the ideas of my books, I completely believed in. It wasn't like I was trying to sell that to other people, but I didn't believe it myself. I fully believed it. I live by it. And I experienced the bad consequences of those very flawed ideas in my own life. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. 
If you've got backyard barbecue plans for 2022, but mosquitoes are not invited, I recommend Insect. I've been using their pest control service for several years now. They have a certified mosquito identification specialist on staff, and pollinator care is always top of mind. If you live in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give them a call, ensec.net. The UWF Historic Trust. We shoot the show at the Pensacola Museum of History. It not only houses exhibits of lesser-known Pensacola history, it's an event space too. So if you need a unique space in downtown Pensacola for a fundraiser, networking event, or a corporate party, take a look at historicpensacola.org. And if you want to tour one of the 12 museums, get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Get emails by texting REAL to 66866. Now back to the show. And so I, I can relate to that. I can relate to thoughts of like, why didn't I, you know, go travel the world when I was 21? Why didn't I date, you know, lots of different people and understand myself better? Why was I so fearful? And the only thing that I can do now, um, you know, as a result of that is to try to live a more honest and free life today. That's the only thing I can do. You know, I, I found that endlessly just living in the past doesn't serve me in terms of living in that regret, but I do need to try to take those lessons. And, and it's, it's not easy because honestly you'd think, Oh, okay, well you live through that. Well, now you won't make that mistake. Well, a lot of those patterns are very deeply ingrained. It like, it takes a lot of work for me to actually kind of quiet myself and to, I mean, it's almost like a meditation to be like, what do you actually want, Josh? Like not what anyone else is saying, not your kids or your, you know, friends or the expectations of people. What do you actually want? Like, that's a very difficult muscle for me to exercise and because I I haven't used it for much of my (laughs) life. And so, you know, it's a, it's a learning process, but I, I have, you know, I'm grateful that I have so many friends. I mean, I've got this little like club of, of bros that are like all (laughs) these guys that have gone through divorces and we're like outcasts for a lot of our, you know, old community, but we just, we have these conversations and we talk about what we're learning and we laugh at how we're like, you know, experiencing new things in our lives. And we're, we're kind of like, so awkward like these teens that have never you know done certain things and but but we're you know we're growing and we're learning and we're we're figuring out what uh what what gives us life oh josh we're all in your club okay (laughs) (laughs) we're all in that club there's a huge there's a huge bunch of us from the midwest uh in the united states Uh, who are also in your club um, something that was brought up when I was talking to one of my club members, I'm going to start calling them that. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, then my thoughts have gone in a million direction about what we would call the club and I need to reel myself back in. Um, I, but she brought up something interesting that I wanted to run by you. Uh, she said that some aspects of your book she felt were still valid. Um, and I wanted to know if you felt that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a very tricky question to answer because I'd have to be very specific about which parts of it are are still valid. I I would say, you know, it's funny. I have conversations with um, my my son who is single, lives in New York City, um, and 
he laughs with me and he's basically like, I could see there being a revival of the ideas in your book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye Now, because people are so burnt out on online dating and, you know, that whole world. And I just laugh at that because I'm just like, are you kidding? <laughs> but I, I think that some of the things that are relevant in the book is that it's trying to address this question of, you know, endless experimentation and kind of short-term relationship after short-term relationship can really be extremely draining for people who are looking for that long-term um, commitment with, with one person. And I mean, I just read an article about how Tinder is 10 years old. And now there are so many people that are just like, so burnt out on the, you know, the online dating app game. And they just like can hardly take any more of it because they've just come to this place where um, they, they don't have any hope of actually finding someone. And yet they're just like swiping through countless, you know, people and so on. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that there are parts, there are ways, there are parts of dating that are quite broken today. I think there's a lot of frustration about it. And I think you will, I think my book was one expression of trying to find a saner, healthier way to approach that. Now, the problem with my approach, it was very control-based. It was very, you know, guilt-based and shame-based and so on. But I, I really think it's important, you know, from my own standpoint, I want people to have the freedom to do whatever they want. You know, if there are people who say, I want a very restrictive, you know, my family is involved in who I marry, you know, kind of experience of courtship, you know, more power to you. What's important to me is that people are making that decision themselves. It's not being forced on them from anyone else. The same goes with online dating. It's like, if you're enjoying that, you're having lots of different sexual experiences and you're having a great time. Wonderful. You know, but I hope that's not because there's this pressure from all your friends that you have to be doing this. You know, I just want to encourage people to be free, to know what they want themselves, um, to be making decisions that are informed by what's best for them and what they kind of feel good about in the way that they're relating to other people. So I, I think that, uh, you know, I guess dating a was trying to ask some questions. I think the answers that it came up with were wrong, but I think every generation is going to keep having to ask those questions. And as we lose like a community-based support system, as we lose the ability to get to know others in contexts that are supported by family and extended community and so on, I think a lot of people feel quite alone and quite frustrated and maybe even scared a little bit by the the whole process. And so I I worry at times that, you know, the ideas that I keep stating goodbye will be recycled by someone new. Um, I'm almost positive that's going to happen. But it's because there's there's a lot of frustration when it comes to finding a finding a partner, especially in a culture that's quite liberated sexually and so on. So much frustration. I had some very interesting conversations as part of my research for our discussion. Did you really? I really did. And, you know, I can tell like some of them were, I was just like asking, I had like three questions I pulled the audience with. Mm. um, And some of them just answered the questions. And then others, they were like, actually, I really want to dig into this. Can we have a Zoom call? And I'm like, yeah, I haven't talked to you in 20 (laughs) years. Let's do that. And and it was like therapy for us. I love that you say deciding what you want. And for me, that's so key because that's the difference. Because for us, for the ladies of uh, my community, it wasn't about 
like, l- let me just be a little TMI for a minute. There were women in my community who didn't use tampons because they felt like mm. that it would diminish their virginal qualities. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I've that wasn't because like they had biological, you know, anatomical information about, mm. you know, virginal qualities, clearly. It was about, yeah. it was like, um, it was like a spell. Like if I'm really yeah. pure, if I don't hold mm-hmm. hands, if I don't kiss, if I don't think about sex, if I don't masturbate, then mm. I have created the perfect um, formula that will equal happiness. There was definitely no discussion about like, you know, I will have a good sex life. That wasn't even a part. Surprisingly, mm. I think that maybe got taught on the dude side, but on the girl side, it was about, I will be happy. I will be safe. I will be like all the things that you would want from a marriage will happen. And so it Mm -hmm. obviously created a lot of disappointments because that has nothing to do with anything. Um, So I love the, the idea of sitting with yourself and deciding what Mm -hmm. you want, whether it is in this Mm -hmm. more traditional tender online app dating format, or if it has some elements of traditional, uh, courtship. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really powerful. Well, it's, it's so tied to the family context, right? Like as you're talking about it, you know, the experience of a late twenties single or, you know, a mid forties single after a divorce or whatever is completely different than the teenager who is making decisions for the first time, you know, whose parents, you know, care about them, want to protect them from real life consequences that can come from the decisions that are made when it comes to sexuality at this age, you know, at that age, that kind of thing. So even as I look back, like I kissed dating goodbye was targeting teenagers. I was, I had just gone through the teen years myself. I was writing to try to inspire teens. And the reasons those very restrictive ideas were so embraced is because there was a whole generation of parents in particular and youth pastors that were wanting to protect their kids from premarital sex because that would lead to, you know, unwanted pregnancies and possibly abortion and AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. You know, like that was like that was the focus of that that era, and um, so the the answer was control. But I was so fascinated because literally last night my um, my youngest uh, is in AP Euro class in high school. And I start flipping through this textbook and there's a whole section about like this person writing about views of sexuality in the 1800s. Really? (laughs) And it was, it was talking about the fact that in the upper class in this era, the, um, the men had all this freedom. Boys will be boys. It's exactly what we talked about. They're like, of course, guys are going to want to sow the, their wild oats and, you know, do those kinds of things. But in the upper class, the women were protected with ignorance. Like they needed to know, they needed, they couldn't know how babies were made. They couldn't know anything about their own bodies, all these kinds of things. Like that was the ideal of, you know, feminine virtue. The lower classes were out like screwing around and, you know, (laughs) having sex and, and so on, because there wasn't the same ability to, you know, keep them from that and so on. But I'm just reading this going, oh, wow. Like, you know, these ideas have shaped the Western culture hundreds of years before my silly book showed up on the scene and shaped different parts of Christianity and, and so on. And, um, you know, they're, they're, 
they're just out there circulating. And so we're still, it's like, we're still dealing with the, the, the after effects of the tsunami of certain ideas. And, and it's hard to change those things. It's hard to change those things at a cultural level. Oh yeah. I mean, it goes way, way back. I got on a rabbit trail of a podcast about the history of prostitution, naturally. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) As one does. And all the way back in when the Roman empire was at its peak, um, they were really known for sexual exploits. But when the, I'm going to mess this up. (laughs) When the emperor became a Christian, they were like, no more human trafficking because they trafficked a lot. And so that was like a positive thing that came through it. But then it it turned into exactly what you're discussing as a means of power. Mm. And although you said my silly little book, I do think your book, uh, the the popularity of your book, I should say, Mm. really illustrates the disparity between the men and the women. Because Mm. how is it that a, I'm going to assume you're 21, so don't take this wrong way. I'm going to assume you're sexually unexperienced, like not maybe a virgin, but maybe not like a dynamo. How is that (laughs) a sexually unexperienced 20 year old, 21 year old man writes a book and it becomes like Mm. the basis of so many sermons, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think the answer is it's because that's how the system works. (laughs) Yeah. And that's really. The fact that I was inexperienced sexually was, was actually a, a badge of honor and authority. You know what I mean? Like if I, if I had sexual experience, then it would be like, Oh, well you've kind of gone and done your thing. And now you're coming back to being, you know, pure. But so it's in that, in that kind of warped world, that's actually a badge of authority in a (laughs) ridiculous way. But yeah, to think about the fact that someone that's that experience, just even relationally and life experience wise is writing something that people are shaping massive decisions by is is quite is quite ridiculous but i think it's a common pattern in evangelicalism that first of all evangelicalism is very movement based it's very prone to big waves of ideas that sweep through you know everybody buys the book churches are excited about something we love like our billy graham crusades and promise keepers and, you know, all those types of different things. And oftentimes at the forefront of those movements are young adults because young adults have so much passion and fervor. And a lot of times that passion and fervor is, I would say, ignorant. You know, there are young people that are looking for identity and security. And when you're in your early 20s, you have the world figured out. You're kind of, you're arrogant and you're like, what? Why have you guys taken so long to to fix this part of the world? You're looking at the previous generation. And you're like, you guys are losers. Like, <laughs> we're going to be the ones to fix this. This is not that complicated. We just need to be more hardcore. You guys aren't hardcore enough. That pattern is actually repeated in so many different like social movements, not even just religious, in so many different social movements. There's something about that age where you have so much boundless energy, so much optimism, and and you're naive. You're naive about human nature you're naive about your own self. And so, you know, my book, I think was an example of that. I was at at the forefront of that because I was this young guy who was saying all the things that the parents and the pastors wanted somebody to say. And I had more credibility because I was, you know, a single person myself. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, so much to unpack. So, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, but as we wrap up, I would love for you to speak to how you 
might wish that the world talked to those young people about sex and sexuality, mm. having kids yourself and mm. having gone through this experience. I'm very curious yeah. about your perspective. Well, I think the thing that I would, I would hope, I'd hope this for my own kids. I'd hope this for others. is just when you take shame and guilt out of the conversation and when it comes to sexuality, that, that I think is the healthy place um, where people understand where they're able to be educated, where they, they're able to learn about what gives them pleasure, you know, how they want to interact sexually with other people, where things like masturbation and, you know, all those kinds of things are, there's, there's no shame around them. And people are able to learn about themselves and about what they want consensual sex to, to look like. That I think is a really powerful place. I would include with that though, kind of an understanding of, listen, this is such a powerful, incredible way to connect with other people. Um, you need to, you need to be, feel that you're in control of this. You know, you need to understand long-term the kind of the pros and cons of all these different paths, whether it comes to marriage and commitment or not, not commitment or whatever, like our, our culture is experimenting with so many different types of things. And, um, not all of that is for everyone. And so for people to have the freedom to say, I'm not really into that, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, I don't really want that. I think that's an important freedom as well. And so it's like, I, I, I would hope that people could be freed from the shame and guilt of saying sex is bad, but also from the shame and, and guilt of saying, I'm not, that's not for me. I actually want this over here. Like there's a, there's a certain choosing that takes place. And sometimes people will be like, well, why would you want that? You know? Um, and that can, that judgment can come from so many directions, but in that safer place, that's where I think people can be informed. They can learn about themselves and then they can make decisions knowing that I made these decisions myself, not because someone else was, was pushing me or forcing me to. I love that. And I think a life lived with at least one less regret <laughs> is probably a positive one on either side. If someone mm. wants to continue this train of thought, explore this area of active, of curiosity, um, I know your book is no longer in active printing. You're no longer receiving mm. any financial benefit from the book or from the uh, documentary. Um, what's the right. best way for people to kind of explore the subject more or keep in touch with you? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say it's not about keeping in touch with me, honestly. There are so many other people that are writing about this, women in particular. Um, I don't have all the book titles in my mind. There's a great, <laughs> there's a great book named Pure uh, that's out there that, that talks about this in detail. Um, if you just Google purity culture uh, and books on purity culture, you'll find some really powerful voices that are critiquing these ideas that are writing about these things. So that's where I'd encourage people to, to go for, for more information. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. Well, maybe I can link those in my, um, the Saturday email that comes out when this episode airs. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. yeah so we can talk, it. you know, afterwards and you can be like, okay, I thought of the book and then I'll link them. Yeah, so, exactly. so if you're listening to this now and you are not part of that email list, all you have to do, if you're in the U S you can text real to six, six, eight, six, six. And if you're outside the U S just go to meredithforreal.com and you can get on the list. So um, that'll be awesome. And you have a website, joshharris.com, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I do a little podcast where I just interview people about business and, and marketing and, and different kinds of things like that. 
Perfect. Thank you so much. This was really awesome. Oh, Meredith, I'm, I'm glad we're in the same club. We definitely have to have a chapter chapter meeting one day. <laughs> and, think, and think of a great name. So to be continued. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for listening. If you've loved a couple episodes of this show, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the Good Pods app. And if you liked this episode, you'll also like the one with the writer of the movie, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, and his hilarious purity culture stories, episode 90. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a survivalist turned therapist, combining his skills for outdoor therapy. Until next time.